Namaste everyone. Welcome to the Charvak Podcast. This is your host Kushal Mehra. All right, my guest today is Dr. Makaran Paranjpe and we are here to talk about his book JNU Nationalism and India's Uncivil War. Welcome Dr. Paranjpe. Thank you Kushal ji. It's wonderful to be on your show again. Probably I think it's for the third time. Yes. Yes, yes, for the third time. So, Dr. Paranjpe, I actually wanted to start with this. I, I was fascinated by the title of the book itself. So, so you've used uh, some interesting words here, nationalism and India's uncivil war. Now, now, why, why do we, why do, why did you use uh, the word uncivil war? So, let's, let's break down the uncivility itself first. Exactly. Well, you know, it's a pun, as it were, or a play on words, because a civil war is normally an armed conflict, the kind that the United States went through. You might say our partition was like a civil war, though it was an undeclared war. Uh, so what I meant by an uncivil war is a war which is, you know, if not as bloody, certainly, I mean, in other words, not involving as much bloodshed, it's certainly extremely violent, you know, in terms of the rhetoric. So I see that what we experience in India over the last uh, maybe a decade or so or a little less is nothing short of, a, of an uncivil war, you know, it's a culture war. And uh, we need not feel, you know, exceptionally concerned or guilty because the world over, free societies are going through this churn, tremendous churn. And uh, it comes with certain attendant features, which I have tried to outline in the book. And uh, one of these is, of course, illiberal liberalism. That is the twilight of liberalism, the decline of liberalism. And now Francis Fukuyama also has a book on it. So this kind of illiberal liberalism, cancel culture, wokeism uh, and uh, polarization of society, uh, the hollowing out of the middle ground of rational and civilized dialogue uh, and debate and dissent, which are, in my view, at the heart of democracy. And I'm not a conspiracy theorist, but I do believe that there are authoritarian trend, trends and tendencies within free societies where people are beginning to think, you know what, it's good to have a very strong leadership. Everyone lines up behind a strong leader. And the difference between civil society and government reduces. So you have the same ideology permeating both sectors. So these are dangerous things, but it's happening all over the world. Uh, and yet, uh, why, why in India, I think it's a little different, is that it's also the time of you might say the unfinished Indian Renaissance, which required certain conditions, you know, which required the debunking of certain, uh, uh, you know, state or statist ideologies. So that's my, my book is plugging right into this conflict, uh, taking JNU as the site uh, of symbolic, uh, you know, you might say it, it symbolizes the debates at the national level because JNU was a left. Uh, a bastion, as you know, but yet the debates that took place here, the fight over JNU is in some ways the fight over India. That's what I've tried to show in the book. 
So now in your book, you you have a very specific concept that you talk about. And I think we have to spend some time on that. So you start, uh, if I remember correctly, it is on uh, in it, it's, it's in the prologue itself. You talk about intermedial hermeneutics and later on, you also talk about diatopical hermeneutics. Now, now these are highly technical uh, terminologies, Dr. Pananjpe. And uh, maybe the average reader, when they read the book, they may find it hard to understand. So so my, my request to you will be, let us spend some time. And if you could break down these concepts and explain them through simplistic analogies, when you're talking about uh, intermediate hermeneutics, what exactly are we talking about here? Exactly. Well, intermediate hermeneutics, I would like to take credit for coining this uh, phrase, but uh, essentially it's a way of reading or interpreting because that's what hermeneutics means. Not just texts, not just books, not just documents or uh, pamphlets or, or uh, even the constitution of a country or, uh, you know, the uh, poll uh you know agenda of a party before uh, an election but a way of interpreting society because let's face it we are all trying to engage uh, and intervene and possibly transform the societies where we live now the point i've been trying to make is illustrated uh in a in a in an article which came out just this morning in the new indian express where my argument is what happens when you want to end the politics of appeasement? Because we know what the politics of appeasement does. You know, it divides society, it uh, pits citizens against each other, and uh, it creates a minoritarianism, which is really unhealthy. Now, what happens is sometimes the pendulum swings to the other side and uh, is the alternative to appeasement domination, where one community, say the majority community, dominates the minority, demonizes it, and constantly accuses it of bad faith, if not, you know, betrayal, if not of treason, you know. That is what, that is where intermediate hermeneutics comes in, that usually the corrective is an overcorrective, and you go to the other extreme, which is also terribly harmful. That's why I said illiberal liberalism means that you start with freedom of expression and then you clamp down on everything. So again, the pendulum swings. And in the uncivil wars that we are going through, there's a dire need for intermediate hermeneutics, which is not necessarily some kind of uh, middle path, which is very mechanistically or mechanically negotiated. Not at all. In each instance, there'll be a difference of how you work it out. But fundamentally, the, the, uh, the theoretical assumption is that the polarities do not represent uh, the reality. They do not represent what's actually happening in society. And one of the factors I didn't mention, but it's obvious that, you know, wherever we see this crisis, social media is a part of it. The shrill rhetoric, if not uh, worse, you can call it trolling, you can call it, uh, uh, you know, these anonymous handles, which are bots. But this extremely divisive and polarizing rhetoric that social media unleashes 
as a form of mind control and influence, you know. The populace is being influenced and divided. So these are the features of the uncivil wars that we see. We can outline many more. But uh, it, it also results in social inequalities, especially exacerbated by things like COVID, where uh, you have an underclass of underemployed or unemployed youth. We saw the protests over Agnivir, the scheme, even if you might say these were politically motivated. You see the anguish, the angst, the anxiety, the insecurity that the young who are not very well qualified or who don't have uh, the special skill set to survive, who are not anti-fragile, the anxiety, the insecurity, the anger that they feel. Again, this is endemic to free societies the world over. So these are some of the features. And intermediate hermeneutics is required so that you can get more, uh, I would say, engaged and accurate understanding of what's happening in these societies. And eventually, if you do it right, intermediality will also be remedial. It will also heal the fissures. It will also try to bring these opposites together. Uh, it's not to reconcile opposites, but at least to have them in a meaningful dialogue. And this is where the other phrase that you mentioned, diatopical hermeneutics, comes in. Because in a way, I derive intermediality from this diatopical hermeneutics and its genealogy. It's interesting. It actually goes to a, an Indian, uh, amazingly erudite uh, person called Raymondo Panikar, a theologian, uh, uh, originally from Kerala. Uh, I mean, his father was Keralaite, his mother was Spanish, and he settled uh, in Spain, you know. In, uh, uh, and he was, a, as I said, he did a Veda Manjari. He was a Catholic, but then the church was very unhappy with him. We won't go into the details, but he uses it the first time. But the person that, uh, that tried to apply it to various domains in the social studies sector was a man called Bonventura uh, de Souza Santos. He's not known in India. He's a, he's a, he's a Portuguese uh, uh, you know, human rights and social science uh, uh, you know, academic. But his basic thesis is this, that uh, to have a dialogue, both sides must admit the incompleteness of their positions. And that's why you can have a diatopical meaning, two topoi, two topos. You occupy a topos, I occupy a topos. It can be, my topos can be Hindu, it can be communist, it can be liberal, it can be conservative, it can be dharmic. It can be Islamic, whatever my topos is. And yours can be something else. It can be Jain, it can be Charvak, uh, whatever, Hindutva. But the starting point of the dialogue is I have something to learn from you because I'm incomplete. My, I don't have perfect knowledge. Now, those who are very steeped in their methodology, whether they are Islamists or radicals or communists or secular fundamentalists, they will never admit the incompleteness of their position. So it's impossible to have a dialogue with them. So in that sense, diatopical hermeneutics is not for them. It's only, I would say, ideological clashes. You know, when I say these ignorant armies clashing by night, uh, to quote Matthew Arnold, that's, that's what they bring everything down to, which we see the noise on our mainstream media at nine o'clock or 
you know, the obsessive and excessive uh, slamming of opponents on social media. So I, I, I move away a little bit from diatopical to intermediality because intermediality is not just about two topoi. It's not just that there are polarities and you steer in between. Intermediality can deal with many positions, basically, and is a productive way of reading Tagore, reading Gandhi, reading Savarkar, uh, reading Hedgevar. I mean, of contrasting Hindutva nationalism with maybe Gandhian nationalism. You know, intermediality allows us to face off these positions in a meaningful way and not in a reductive and polarizing and ideological way. I get it. But but what what is fascinating in this entire process is what basically we are talking about is how does the churn happen in a society how does how do we do a sambad and what i have noticed is uh, i agree with you the thing is that social media is designed in a very absurd sort of way social media or discourse is designed where only the ideologue gets to gets to speak and gets a seat at the table and the ideologue by nature that, that's how the ideologue uh, you know, the essence of an ideologue is that I will not compromise because they're an ideologue. You know, they, they are attached to an idea. They're too married to an idea. And as you were talking about hermeneutics, actually to take us, you know, using Indian epistemology, you know, I was immediately reminded of Anekantvad of Mahavira. You know how Anekantvad creates a very flexible and pluralistic system of dialogue. Now, obviously, uh, Mahavira's uh, Anekantvad was about finding the truth. But if you were to use and extrapolate the principles of Anekantvad, and if you could, you know, you know, take those principles and put the Saptabangi Naya in a in a in a you know a process where we are conversing with each other, I think it would create a, a, a very, very interesting sort of scenario where, you know, as you rightfully said, nobody knows everything with certainty and when you don't know something with certainty and you interact if you come with that position on the table where you genuinely are intellectually humble the biggest lack of humility that i see in an ideologue is epistemic humility people are not epistemically humble right i mean if you're not epistemically humble you've you've lost the battle there because you're not going to learn and now i want to connect it to something that you you know you write in this book to 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 talk about what does it mean to be a liberal today Dr. Paranjpe, right? I mean, is liberalism dying or is liberalism now morphing into something unworkable? Now, I don't know. I, I thought I was a liberal uh, until I met some liberals. I did not. I, I mean, I can't relate to those people. I mean, they are so fixated in their worldviews that I don't know how, what to do with them. So, so let's talk about liberalism and how, you know, through this book itself, you talk about the journey of your uh, interaction with liberals inside JNU and how they were not so liberal with you. Right. So I think your question about liberalism can be answered vis-a-vis -vis the claims that liberal make, liberals make, you know, similar to the claims that secularists make. So liberalism by itself is not at fault. It's just that the liberals have let it down by being hypocrites, by selective uh, and deeply propagandist or deeply uh, dishonest uh, uh, political posturing. You know, So it's not liberalism that has failed. Of course, there's a deep contradiction in liberalism because on the one hand, 
economic liberals are about laissez-faire economics, about the free market, and about individual freedoms, which most of us support. But social liberals are so obsessed with equalizing and tokenism <clears throat> and identity politics that liberalism is kind of splitting down the middle. It's, it's schizophrenic, you know, it's Janus-faced, it's facing in two opposite directions. And so its internal contradictions are bringing it down. But I think apart from that, it's really the liberals who have let down liberalism. And it's not new. A hundred years ago, people in the Western world were spying for Russia, for Mother Russia, uh, in the name of liberalism. And today they're doing it, you know, for some other powers and for some other causes which are very divisive and, and very bad for their own country. And this is happening in America, it's happening in Britain, it's happening in India. And one of the sorry, should I say, sordid and sorry records of liberalism is its inability to call out radical Islamism, which is a threat to the world. And instead they focus on other things, blaming the victim and so forth. So my book has all of these things, but. For me, JNU is the theater of these debates. And uh, those who claim to be tolerant, those who came to be, claim to be progressive, those who cl claim to be dissenters, those who claim to be you know, fighting for the rights of the underdog, I found all of these people were highly suspect, I mean, highly, I would say, lacking in integrity. So again, as I said, the book is a means to use JNU, which became a theater of an anti-government and more particularly anti-BJP, anti-Modi campaign. And for me, that is not the purpose of a university, okay? You can do your politics, you can have opinions, you can stage a dharna, but you can't shut down the university because of the claim that an elected government and an elected prime minister is not legitimate just because you disagree with their ideology. So I found uh, that this was really insidious, it was nefarious. And when they started promoting the Kashmiri separatists, which by the way, they had done earlier, but the flashpoint came this time because there was another group of students who opposed them. And then they turned it into uh, this, as I said, this international theater where, uh, you know, the university was closed, classes were suspended which is very undemocratic, because if I want to study, how can you stop me? And that's how the Karamchari Union, which nobody talks about, I've talked about it in my book, did not support the students or the teachers. The Teachers Association and the students came together because they were associated both with the same Communist Party, CPIM. And the Karamchari Union said, nothing doing. Our children want to study and you are preventing them from going to labs and classrooms. So, so the position I took in the teaching was that a university cannot be subverted from its primary purpose, which is learning, teaching, and uh, essentially getting degrees for students. It can't be shut down and turned into this platform against a particular government just because you don't agree with the ideology of the government. Okay. But what is interesting in this entire process, Dr. Parajpe, is that um, while you were 
standing for a principle that actually any decent human being should stand for to be very honest i mean अभी अगर यूनिवर्सिटी में बच्चा पढ़ाई नहीं करेगा तो और क्या करेगा मुझे तो आज तक ये नहीं समझ पड़ा सो बट द पॉइंट इज दैट दर इज अ वेरी इंटरेस्टिंग लाइन इन द बुक दैट यू यू मेंशन यू से दैट व्हेन इट केम टू यू नो यू बीइंग हैकल्ड एंड एंड हैकल्ड इज द राइट वर्ड बिकॉज़ यू वर बीइंग हैकल्ड आई स्टिल रिमेंबर द दैट दैट इमेज ऑफ कहा था आप वो डिबेट कर रहे थे यू वर कॉल्ड फॉर अ डिस्कशन और डिबेट वैसे स्टूडेंट्स थे और आप खड़े थे और शायद कन्हैया था पता नहीं मुझे याद नहीं एग्जैक्टली क्या था वो वो इमेज मेरे दिमाग में आज भी बैठी हुई है मुझे याद है मैंने टीवी पे देखा था इट्स अ वेरी इंटरेस्टिंग थिंग इन द बुक यू राइट आई थिंक इट्स अगेन इन द प्रोलॉग यू से पैराडॉक्सिकली वाइल दी ऑफिशियल राइट विंग इन जे यू डिड लिटिल टू हेल्प मी और इंडोर्स वॉट आई स्टूड फॉर आई हैड ओवरवेलमिंग इनकरेजमेंट एंड सस्टेनेंस फ्रॉम वेल मीनिंग इंडियंस नॉट जस्ट इन इंडिया बट ऑल्सो अब्रॉड आई एम नॉट अ मेम्बर ऑफ एनी पोलिटिकल पार्टी और आउटफुट दैट इज वाई एम थैंकफुल फॉर दी अनसेल्फिश अफिनिटी एंड फेलोशिप ऑफ दोज हुव डिफेंडेड एंड प्रोटेक्टेड मी नाउ वाई एम आई आस्किंग दिस इज दर इज अ स्पेसिफिक रीजन दर इज अ लॉट ऑफ टॉक ऑफ नेशनलिज्म इन इंडिया यू नो एक तरफ एक एक इस्लामिस्ट आइडियोलॉजी है और एक तरफ आई डोंट नो मेरे को तो डर नहीं लगता मैं तो सीधा कह देता हूँ मुझे तो कभी भी ऐसा शर्म नहीं आई ये जो नेशनलिज्म की परिभाषा क्या है डॉक्टर पराज पे व्हाट इज अ नेशनलिज्म ये ये हो रहा क्या है हमारे देश में एक वेर डू वी नो नेशनलिज्म बिकम्स जिंगोइज्म इज माई प्रॉब्लम एंड लेट एस टॉक अबाउट समथिंग दैट यू शेयर इन योर बुक You talk in detail about Rabindranath Tagore. आप काफी you, you spend a lot of time on that, and and the the excerpts you share there, I request you to talk about that now. See, Tagore has been considered an anti-nationalist by many who want to use him against nationalism. Okay, why do they want to use him against nationalism? Because they think. nationalism equals bjp and uh, what they stand for you know is against the bjp but i have argued in the book that in the lectures on nationalism that tagore gave he gave them in japan in 1917 and then he gave them in the us that was the time of the first world war and he was alarmed at uh, exactly what you said the jingoism the chauvinism and basically how nationalism became imperialism now he couldn't use the word imperialism or colonialism because he was stained by the british secret service especially on his journeys to the east so you know many people used to use code words like i would say that uh, the subaltern word which has become so common was used by gramsci as a code word because he couldn't use the proletariat you know or for example uh mikhail bakhtin you know he used polyphony as a code word because he couldn't uh you know say that socialist realism sucked so people use code words if we are not free to say what we want to say and i think tagore was not free to say that he hated you know imperialism he hated one country colonizing the other and completely dominating that other country and sucking its life blood so he called it nationalism with a with an n 
and it's interesting that these lectures which were in english when they are translated back into bengali they don't say rashtra they don't say desh they don't say uh, samaj in bangla they they use the word nation because tagore uses it in a very special sense but let's let's face it tagore was deeply concerned at the mechanistic and anti a uh, humanistic way in which ideologies brainwash individuals instrumentalize them use them for a purpose which is eventually uh, very bad for them as as human beings it's it's against human flourishing to instrumentalize another human being and ideologies do that communism does it and a certain kind of nationalism also does it and we're seeing it today you have these foot soldiers who are so proud of being nationalist and they can be very violent they can be very intolerant of others who disagree with them but i think when we come to nationalism in india we must recognize that there were competing kinds of nationalism competing brands or models of nationalism when india tried to become free and one as you rightly said was a kind of islamist nationalism which eventually became pakistan it was the ideologues were people like maulana maududi not iqbal but who maududi he wanted to create a sharia compliant modern state of so to speak pure muslims you know so these were revivalist movements deeply influenced by wahhabism and i think the consequences are disastrous the world over wherever people go to that so india chose secularism and gandhi and nehru believed that your religion is your personal affair the the citizen is has a contract with the state and with the leaders he or she elects and ambedkar wrote a constitution which reflects some of these principles but unfortunately the politics of post independence india did not honor this secularism of our constitution instead they played ducks and drakes with it you know which we call today pseudo secularism appeasement of minorities using state funds to send people to hajj what has a pilgrimage which is a requirement of a particular religion to do with uh, uh, the taxpayer and his or her money it's abs- it's absolutely unacceptable to use our money but you want to appease them create vote banks but we've done it across the board it's not just with religion we've played identity politics with region with language with caste uh with ethnicity with tribal non tribal you name it we've played all these games and all of them to me go against the spirit of the constitution where we are supposed to be equal in the eyes of the state and the law which we are not we have different personal laws etc etc so i think that model also failed and then there was nda under vajpay i would call it hindutva 1.0 and that didn't work either because they did not come up with a robust alternative to the pseudo secular model and now you have a very muscular hindutva which is being championed by all and sundry without being properly debated and the danger of that is that you want to create a de facto hindu state while you have a de jure secular state and i think that's underhand we shouldn't do that if you want a hindu state declare it openly make it a part of your 
you know, election manifesto. Go to the people, win an election, modify the constitution. See, I think one of the big failings of us in India is this hypocrisy. The hypocrisy of liberals is, of course, reprehensible. But the hypocrisy of the Hindutvavadi should not be, you know, raised to some summit of virtue either. So you can't say on the one hand that, oh, the Muslims of India have the same DNA as Hindus. And then say you must distrust every Muslim because their religion is whatever you want to call it, illogical or stuck in time or too fanatical. Because that's simply not true historically. There are all kinds of Muslims, all kinds of Muslim states, and all Muslims are not the same, even in India. And even, uh, you know, the North faced a kind of Islamic invasion, and the South didn't face most of it, though there was a sultanate in Madurai for a brief time. There were traders in the South, and you'll see where Islam is not linked to the quest for power and domination. It's a different Islam. Okay, If you go to Tamil Nadu, most of the business community is Muslim, even in Sri Lanka, in certain parts, apart from Chettiars and other communities. And they're not necessarily always at war. Of course, the danger is they can be radicalized. And does it mean that Hindus cannot be radicalized? They can also be radicalized. So to answer your question, I think that the pendulum is swinging to the other side and maybe it's a corrective but it shouldn't go too far in the other direction that's why as i've said today in my op-ed that the alternative or the substitute for appeasement is not domination where you create a state where anybody who doesn't subscribe to your religion or ideology becomes a second class or a second-rate citizen. What do, you, what do I mean by second class? I mean by second class that the law treats them differently. That won't happen. And all government schemes, as this government is very proud of saying over and over again, does not differentiate between a person's religion. It doesn't. But it does, because there are some schemes which are still only for minorities, which this government itself has, has promoted. So let's face that. And they're still funding madarsas and other things which I, I don't think they should do. No religious school should be funded by the state. Anyhow, but so it can't be de jure right now. That would be second class citizen. That's not possible right now. But second rate citizens, yes, that can easily happen. If you constantly demonize a particular community and it's already happening, I have people who complain that uh, we don't get a house in the society if you're Muslim. And, uh, you know, we are discriminated against. And you can't brush aside all this. And nor can you justify it just because somebody beheaded someone else. You see, these are two completely different things, you know. And we must have a, a way of differentiating them. So that's why I say zero tolerance uh, for hatred, bigotry, religious violence, zero tolerance for places of worship being used. Uh, for other purposes. And let's not face, uh, let's not forget that some of this also happened in Punjab with another faith. And even today, uh, there have been so-called blasphemy killings, even in the holier shrines of other faiths, you know, than Muslims. So uh, the point is, why are we ignoring those, uh, uh, you know, danger signs 
uh, as well. So my point is that intermediate hermeneutics means that if you're opposed to appeasement, it doesn't mean that you should say you should look the other way when you're when you're demonizing another community, stereotyping them. On the other hand, we should isolate the bad elements and build bridges with the good ones so that you have social harmony. Because let me say to you, Kushalji, I don't see India becoming a great country or progressing economically if you have second-rate citizens because there will be so much simmering discontent. People feel insulted, you know. They, they feel, uh, you know, terribly hurt. And they will harbor the enemies of the state. As, as we know, has happened in Kashmir. Neighbors telling neighbors, it's happened elsewhere, even in Udaipur. So please, we must create conditions of social amity and harmony. And that can only be done if the state is a fair arbiter. Not that you're playing, you know, the Yadav card somewhere and the Jat card somewhere else and the Maratha card, you know, in the state that you live in. And a Muslim card here, a Hindu card there. I'm sorry, we are not going to be a great country. We won't be a great nation. And we won't certainly have an Indian or a Hindu renaissance if we continue this double speak and uh, you know hypocrisy. Because it will create tremendous distrust between the ruled and the rulers. You know? And that distrust will then translate into a weakened social fabric, more inequality which will lead to violence let's face it mm -hmm. you, you know what 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 i always sit and worry about as far as india is concerned is this india has a weird sort of a scenario the failure of the indian secular order or the indian secularists has created a very justified anger in the Hindu community because, you know, all roads lead to Hinduism being bad. But I completely am in agreement with you. You know, this is the classic Popperian paradox, right? How much do you tolerate the intolerant? Is 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 the, the classical paradox, and and the debate is not where you tolerate the intolerant. The debate is whether how intolerant is the intolerant itself, right? How do we grade the intolerance of the intolerant? And and how should the response then be calibrated to the intolerant? And that's where I always tell my friends that in fighting Islamism, we cannot become an Islamist. Otherwise, if I want to present myself as a you know, as a dharmic person, as a Hindu, my and, and I genuinely believe my way is better. I don't even hide it. I genuinely believe my way is better. If my way is better, why am I copying something that if in my perceived idea is inferior, right? Now, people can think they, you know, Islamism is superior and I've, I've got no issues with that. You know, they can live their way. I'm not here to do that. But my point is, if I believe something that I believe in genuinely, let's say I believed in liberal principles, I thought liberalism was better. So I should own up to those principles. And, I, and I'm with you on that. But then, then how do we deal with this intolerant streak then in that case? I mean, the Indian state, Dr. Paranjpe, has failed us. The Indian state has failed us when, when Kanaiya Lal gets beheaded, right? It's a failure of the Indian state that, you know, like I say, uh, uh, did did I find the way Nupur said things on national television, uh, you know, palatable? No, I did not. But the point is the state should protect. Kanaiya Lal was just murdered for saying, I support Nupur Sharma's right to be a blasphemer. 
that's all he did right and he got beheaded for no, that no, one second there's no such thing as blasphemy i'm so sorry in the indian constitution and those articles 295a and so forth you know i wrote another piece on this i said that the supreme court should issue guidelines to police stations that before they file an fir under those articles of the indian penal code those uh, you know sections they should ensure that there's a case prima facie but listen my point is the state should uh, make its view absolutely clear that there'll be zero intolerance of religious hatred mongering from any community it's not that there'll be a differential treatment when you are promoting violence in the name of a religion that's not on now it's not that you will say that you know as i keep saying that we had a situation where people were saying that uh, islamic fanaticism or sikh fanaticism is not as dangerous as hindu fanaticism so we looked the other way when it comes to minority fanaticism or minority religious extremism but when it comes to even a whiff of a hindutva a kind of you know aggressive uh, you know or self defense uh, whatever mode then you demonize it so that's mm-hmm. absolutely rubbish but now you can't take the opposite position which is that we'll be very tolerant of uh, hindutva aggression because you know we've been suppressed for so long it's it's all right to let out steam no i don't think so whether i agree whether it's cow vigilantism or you know i'll tell you the other day there was a debate about a bajrang dal helpline this just proves what you said that the state has failed yes so am i am i in favor of this helpline i am because if the state fails where will i go but Absolutely. the helpline shows that the state's failure is so palpable but i'm saying the state can succeed tomorrow it can if you're an honest broker you're an mm-hmm. honest power broker and you put out that we treat everybody equally that's what i'm constantly say this is a part of the modernization process of citizenship and citizenship training that i elect somebody because he's not someone of my biradari and this is what modi has been doing he has been showing over and over again even in azamgarh that beyond identity politics there is the politics of good governance you know so i'm all for that and i can even accept hindu consolidation as a political strategy why not because when you're dividing in the name of religion as others have done if you consolidate in the name of religion why should you not consolidate hindu votes when you're consolidating muslim votes in bengal or assam or wherever but i think at the level of civil society and uh, as you know i mean these organizations permeate all sections of society that's where you can't constantly ratchet up a hatred and aggression because you think there'll be political uh, you know dividends down the road that's what i'm trying to say that you know that's why as an intellectual the, the commentariat the, whatever the intelligentsia we should not look the other way we should i would say that uh, call out some of these tendencies and trends uh, though i i still feel as you said that that's where you know anekanand uh, you know an you know uh, you know uh, syadwad or uh, you know 
is is a little different from saying, you know, listen to this. Sanatan Dharma has fantastic things to offer. You know, uh, I think that you know that's a good way to go. But that doesn't mean that you know you everybody should become a kshatriya. Everybody is fighting for dharma. Who's authorized them? You know, who has made these dharmic warriors and you know the Ugra Hanumans and somehow it seems as if it's very virtuous now. So I say that for you got beaten down when all these invaders came. What happened to your anger then? Don't tell me that all of this is just riding piggyback on the success of BJP, right? Under UPA also, where were you? Where were all these people at that time? Many, in fact, were very much on the other side. I could name names. I don't want to do that. So I'm against, in, in other words, uh, this hypocrisy, this double standard. And in my book, I said, you know, the shades of color between red and saffron are so, you know, few that, uh, you know, one of the mistakes that these current regime people made is they took all these converted reds and they said, ha, inko banao, because they've joined our side, you know. The neophyte is more welcome. And unfortunately, uh, they made mistakes because they haven't been able to handle institutions properly. There's a decline in higher education. And uh, I keep saying that ideology cannot be our only justification. And if the left was anti-intellectual in some way, so are you. Because you don't respect people uh, who know or who have expertise in their particular area. You are more interested also in promoting people of your own ideology. You know, and uh, you and the argument is, oh, they did it, so we'll do it. That doesn't convince me. That doesn't make you a great country. You know, if you have competence phobia along with competence deficit, that doesn't make you a great country. Mm -hmm. I agree with you. Now, this is I kept this quote for the end because I think this was uh, this is a very important quote from the book. You say. Shouldn't we ask instead whether we are dharmic or adharmic rather than liberal or illiberal? Or to shift to a Persianized idiom, are we imandar or beiman? Our problem then is not lack of ideology, but of integrity. Our failing is not illiberalism, but hypocrisy. I think what we've been talking about, Dr. Paranjpe, in, 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 in its own way, is that you know we are all part of a society where human beings are tribal by nature human beings tend to be uh, you know human beings go in groups i know i mean and then we have this habit of ignoring the follies of our own side while looking at the folly of the other i mean and the and every time we do it the excuses that it's always that's the only answer i get on social media um Somebody, you know, I'll, I'll use the example of free speech in India is because that is something that is very dear to me. Poor Ketiki Chitle. Now, again, that WhatsApp forward must have been disgusting. And I agree. Ketiki Chitle did not deserve to go to jail. She was jailed for criticizing a politician. But you will be, there will be a so-called right wing that will only talk about Ketiki Chitle. I can point out cases where people are jailed for criticizing BJP leaders too in India. If you are not a hypocrite, uh, 
and you stood up for first principles and you really believed in democracy, human rights and building India to be a robust economy and a nation, you would have a problem in both cases. But this is so typical of our discourse that some people have a problem for Ketaki Chitle, others have a problem for the other case. Nobody has a problem for the principle. And I think your quote in the book that I just read from my cell phone, I think that hits at the nuts of our problem. I don't know, maybe if you uh, have a slightly different view on this. No, I completely agree. I completely agree. And I think that if someone were to ask me, what is Sanatan Dharm in a nutshell? I would say Satya Meva Jayate. Na Anratam. Anratam means Adharma. Sanatan Dharm says that Adharma can never win in the long run. And Satya Meva Jayate also in the long run. And people are very impatient and they'll say, in the short run, what happens? We'll lie, we'll cheat, we'll kill, and we'll win. No, no. And the only thing that I'm trying to say, though, is that if you agree that truth is the highest principle, then the question is, how do you arrive at it? Is it Anekantavad, as you said, or is it intermediate hermeneutics? That's your choice, but it's certainly not ideology. Ideology means I have the truth, I possess you know, knowledge because either God told me or you know, it's in my book or my system is perfect. I'm a dialectical materialist and my system is scientific and yours is not. Yours is based on superstition. So my book is trying to say that these methods of either arriving at truths or even proving them or establishing them or promoting them don't work. What works is a continuous and perennial engagement with the nature of truth, which is exactly what science is interested in. And it falsifies those beliefs, those ideas which no longer hold. I think that Social studies, humanity should also do the same. We should also cleave to truth and discard those things which don't work. And I agree with your idea of tribalism, except I feel that there's one human tribe in the end. Call it Homo sapiens, and there's one human civilization. And the fundamental principle of human civilization is that the best practices are copied. So if you think Sanatan Dharma is the best and can be the basis of a fantastic society and even of a great nation, of a great government, then you should create, you know, a society where human flourishing is possible. Human flourishing cannot be possible when you're constantly demonizing someone, dominating someone, you know, hoisting your flag and trampling on other people. And for me, that's not Swaraj. Swaraj definitely means opposing the one who oppresses you. But Swaraj also means self-restraint when you have more power than the other, so that you don't ground them down into the dust. And we are Swarajists, you know, that is our polity. We are Sanatanis, we follow Satya, that is our, you might say, our metaphysics, our axiology, because Sat means, you know, that which is, that which is, you know, that's metaphysics, that's, that's ontology. And... Satya or Satkaryavad or whatever, these are axiological meaning, that mode of conduct, you know, Sadachar, she, uh, you know, Gandhiji called it and then he made it Satyagraha. So Satyagraha, Sadachar, all of these, the Purusharthas are those 
modes of conduct, behavior, social arrangement, thinking, achar, vichar, you know, whatever you want to call them, which are conducive to that way of life. And for that, you don't need a belief in a god or a book or a prophet. And it can be, you know, descent, avatarhood, or it can be ascent, like in the Jains and the Buddhists, where the human being makes themselves so capable that the gods say, wow, well done, you know. So both these paths are given to us. And I think if our civilization is great and we are true to it, then all we need to do is to revive and practice those, I would say, those eternal principles, which is what Sanatan means, eternal, they're still valid. But they're not valid and eternal in the sense it was laid down in a book and it's unchanging. On the contrary, it's completely dynamic. But it, has to, it, it can only be realized in practice. It's not a theory. It's not an ideology. But it's, it's an orthopraxy, as I said in an earlier conversation with you. Absolutely. It's not, uh, it's not an orthodoxy. It's an orthopraxy. Yep, yep, yep. Uh, so just before we wrap up, Dr. Pananjpe, a lot of you know, uh, there's a huge chunk of the audience of this podcast that is between the age group of 18 to 25 and then 25, uh, 25 to say 35 onwards. This this is probably the largest chunk, maybe 65% of the viewership is going to be that. So my last question to you before we wrap up for today is going to be how and and why should a young kid listen to these words that come out of your mouth how do they absorb them and how do they maybe use them in real life then see this is such an important question kushalji and i'm so glad you raised it you know one of the values that india stood for is also freedom but for us freedom was mostly spiritual you know because it 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 encompassed the differentiation and multiplicity of aspirations and paths to the ultimate reality. But today we need social freedom, we need political freedom. And therefore, I think that for the young, I would say that a precondition for human flourishing is freedom. So you should be free to question, free to disagree, and also free to resist the cancel culture, free to resist wokeism, because you're too polite today, you don't want to offend anybody. But remember, anything you say or do may be construed as offensive by somebody. So don't be afraid. You know, follow your own metier, follow your own inner calling. And don't be afraid. And freedom is required for human flourishing. And freedom is freedom to disagree with your elders, with your teachers, with each other. And I would always say to a young person, ask yourself, what is the good life? And of course, for you, it would include some, some degree of material independence and prosperity, which I would never undervalue. Stand on your own feet. That is the foundation of Swaraj. And stand on your own feet economically, but also intellectually, also emotionally. And I think that when I said Satyameva Jayate, the other side of Satya is, of course, freedom. Call it Swaraj or call it Azadi or call it Swatantra, which is, of course, a technical word in Kashmir Shaivism, because only Shiva is Swatantra. And we are Shiva, of course, uh, in that sense. So we, you know, it's, it's the consciousness revolution that is going to help our world and not ideology. And uh, I think that 
the world that we live in is very complex and no one discipline, you know, no one country, no one, uh, this, uh, you know, uh, no one person, no one guru, no one teacher, no one tradition, no one religion, etc., etc., has all the answers. So I would say keep your minds open and, uh, you know, certainly don't believe what I say. Okay, absolutely not. But check it out for yourself. Absolutely, I I I one hundred percent agree with you and endorse these views that uh, you should have always have an open mind. You should listen to people, go and check them out, and uh, then make up your mind. Uh, so, guys, uh, I guess we'll wrap today's discussion up. But before we wrap it up, I once again want to thank uh, Dr. Panajpay for coming on the podcast, sir. It's a, as always a pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much. And I hope some of you feel impelled to read the book and that it does open up some windows or doors in your mind. Thank you so much. All right, guys, we'll wrap today's discussion up. But in the description of the podcast, whether you're watching this on YouTube or you're listening to this on iTunes, Spotify, uh, Google Podcasts, wherever, you'll see a link in the description of the uh, podcast to buy the book. You can go there and buy the book. I insist everybody goes and buys this book. It's a very, very, very good imp and important read to ask. And I think, uh, you know, Dr. Paranjpe was in the middle of the storm in JNU and it kind of, you know, the, you know, he kind of, uh, his journey is also a journey of the discourse of India. So it's a fascinating read. I insist all of you, please go and buy the book. Also follow Dr. Paranjpe on Twitter. I'll leave the Twitter handle over there. As far as I'm concerned, you guys know the drill. You can, you know, subscribe to the channel, like the video, leave your comments underneath uh, this video. Or you can support me on Patreon or on YouTube or through the merch uh, and through UPI. I'll see you guys next time. Until then, take care. Goodbye.